Are you looking for the ideal gift for the dog-loving children in your family? Jack and Billy Puppy Tales is a delightful story with an important message for children of all ages. It's written by Steve Goodall and Sally Bradbury. You'll follow two puppies, Jack and Billy, during that all-important first year of their lives. It's had some amazing reviews from some of the top dog trainers in the world. Dr Ian Dunbar, veterinary behaviourist, says... I started to smile after only four pages. I couldn't put it down and at the end I could barely read for tears of happiness. This is a wonderful book. Karen Tong, dog training instructor and child dog bite prevention educator, said this. This will definitely educate both children and adults about the correct way to bring up a puppy. It belongs in the home of all dog lovers and anyone considering acquiring a puppy. You can find us at jackandbillypuppytails.com and join the adventures. We're also on Facebook, Jack and Billy Puppy Tales. See you soon. We have some very exciting news for you on the Barks from the Bookshelf podcast. Our lovely friends at Dogwise, who publish a lot of the books that we have featured and are due to feature have decided to give all of you lovely listeners 10% off all of their titles. So if you head to their website, which is www.dogwise.com, you can have a look at their catalogue. And when you get to your shopping cart at the end, just type in the coupon code, which is BARKBOOK, all one word, B-A-R-K-B-O-O-K, and they'll give you a whopping 10% off. Enjoy! Hey! Barks from the bookshop, and we're gonna learn about dogs and barks from the bookshop, and we're gonna learn together. Barks from the bookshop, and we're gonna learn about dogs and barks from the bookshop. Here we go. Barks from the bookshop, and we're gonna learn about our dogs and barks from the bookshop, and we're gonna learn together. Barks from the bookshop, we're gonna learn about our dogs and barks from the bookshop. Howdy, blooming doody bookshelvers. How are you on this lovely December day? Um, as I'm recording this, it's actually uh, a lovely December evening. I've just been out for a walk um, with our dogs and we actually went out. It was light and then it got dark during the walk. It's quite a special moment that is sometimes. Um, oh, lucky enough to have my own enclosed field, so um, uh, no no uh, chance of them disappearing off into the darkness. Um, but it was very nice. It was very nice. I hope you're enjoying uh, December. Are you feeling festive, bookshelvers? I've got a few things I wanted to talk about before we get on to today's episode. But if you are feeling festive, then you will be thrilled to know that we have a Christmas special coming at you very soon. So maybe, you know, closer towards Christmas Day, you might be able to wake up and open the virtual stocking of a Barks from the Bookshelf Christmas special. We've got a very special guest planned um, to help us go through Christmas. It's going to be a slightly different format from the other ones. We've got some uh, some nice Christmas quizzes and things like that. It's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be loads and loads of fun. 
Um, we also, I know we haven't had a book review episode for a couple of weeks. That's been due to all of the COVID shenanigans going around. Everyone trying to uh, rearrange their days, classes, all of these things. But we do have an episode coming up before Christmas with the fantastic Melina De Martini Price, who those of you probably already know, um, or if you don't, she has written um, a book on separation anxiety in dogs. Um, I remember reading her first book, Separation Anxiety book, uh, many moons ago, um, which was brilliant. Um, but she's just done an updated version, uh, Next Generation Treatment Protocols and Practice. Um, for those of you that want to find out about separation anxiety, some ways to help with it, bust a few myths around it, that episode will massively interest you. I know I'm very excited to talk to her. But on to today's off-the-shelf episode. So sometimes, sometimes, ladies and gentlemen, you have a conversation with someone and it just, you know, blows your mind. Um, And I think I put up on a post on our Facebook page that, you know, as soon as the conversation was over, I just wanted to go back and have the conversation again. Luckily enough, we recorded the conversation for your ear pleasure. Um, so today, um, we have got uh, Natalie, my good self, and Corin talking to Andrew Hale. Um, here's a little bio of Andrew himself. Andrew is a certified animal behaviorist and a trustee at the Association of Into Dogs, which Corin is a member of, incidentally. Andrew is the behavioral consultant for Pet Remedy and Animals in Distress. He has a passion for exploring the dog's behavioural experience and supporting the emotional health of those that work in the industry. And to boot, he is a top, top geezer. Um, So I'm not going to spoil it too much. We we get into loads of stuff in this conversation. Um, And uh, Andrew comes at it from a a slightly different background, I think, to a lot of animal trainers. Um, But you'll find out all about that. Shall we delve in? Shall we? I think we shall. First might get jammer. Most Most brothers like to call it a gift. First might get jammer. Most Most brothers like to call it a gift. My mind complains like a science analyzed data, not a fader on the face of the earth. Could blend rhythms like my world's a real spin. Never moving like evolution, it's retribution for several roots and lesser futures. I'm stepping the future. Summarizing my subconscious okay? Yeah, you just missed the talk about how we're all dreadful alcoholics, Andrew. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is water here. Yes, of course. <laughs> Lock- lockdown water. Lockdown water, yeah. And yeah. this is coffee. And this is coffee. And this is coffee. It's a good way to drink is. it out of, a, out of a cup, you see, that people don't know, especially when you they go... It's the straw that gives it away for me. And then when you wince, you can just go, it's too hot still. <laughs> oh, thank you so much for agreeing to do this. Um, yeah, thank you. You're a star. You're a star. Nice I... to meet you. Yeah, nice to see you. Nice to see you. I um, listened to your um, um, good mates with Jordan. I listened to his um, open hour interview with you. It's really good. Really, really good. Um, yeah, I like like to talk about mental health and stuff. So I thought it'd be cool, cool to get you on. I mean, we uh, the, the basic premise of our off the shelves are it's um, a bit more informal. Obviously, talking about mental health and things like that goes down quite a, a, a sort of. Uh, serious path so I, I guess we'll, we'll we will steer away from serious from time to time because i also want to talk about tiktok if that's all right <laughs> i need to get my husband i need to get my husband on TikTok. yeah i know, I see, I know. Yeah. 
I've seen more TikTok videos from Kieran than I think of any one of my friends or anything. So, <laughs> you know what? That is kind of a test to mental health in a way because yeah. uh, the backstory to that is Kieran's really, um, oh, he's, he's had a rough time, but uh, then obviously he was very lucky because he met me, right? So that was good. <laughs> um, but when he took, I know uh, what it took for Kieran to start doing those videos initially putting himself out there, putting himself in front of the camera. He, he's got zero low, uh, zero kind of self-confidence on things. And uh, it's just something that we're working through with things. So I'm just so proud of him. And then he started getting good responses and then he just goes for it. And I did that one, as you know, the kind of Christmassy one. Uh, and that was like 20 takes because it, it, it looks so easy, but he just does it so easy, doesn't he, right? Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, th I think that might be my kind of one and only foray into it. Although we have got a Mamma Mia one that takes two people. So we might be looking at that maybe oh, yes. as, a new, as a new year treat, maybe. I've Mom always... Doing the looking to one side, like ABBA style <laughs> it's the one from mamma mia the movie when um they're singing and it's the julie walters character and i can't remember the lady and um the, the one starting to sing and the one keeps butting in and that's the one so i've yeah. never seen mamma mia i i've i'll be honest I'm, I'm, i'll be honest right i when when i was growing up i really didn't like abba now i'm getting older I'm starting to come around to the Abba ways. And also, there's, there's another factor here. Um, also, uh, I've heard loads of people say it's amazing, which, you know, you can, you know, no smoke without fire. But I also got so into The Greatest Showman when I watched it the first time yeah. that I watched it five nights in a row. So I, I imagine that I might quite enjoy Mamma Mia. <laughs> Karen's looking you at me. Well, and do you know what? It's such good fun. And um, The Greatest Showman, that is it's one of our favourite films. Is it? Oh, it is, yeah. And uh, we've watched it, God, God don't know how many times really. But um, it was interesting when that came out, you know, so many of my friends on Facebook were like, this is about circuses, it's all shit, you can't yeah, yeah. see it. So I thought I won't bother seeing it. And then I, I listened to a couple of the songs and I said to Kieran, these are really cool and the video is really amazing. And so let's just give it a go. So I think a lot of people just kind of dismissed it in our circles yeah. because it just was a circusy thing. But actually the, seed, the animals it's are all, all CGI, CGI yeah. Yeah, I think we didn't watch it immediately, did we? I think no. maybe for that reason. And then uh, it was about a year later and it just happened to be on the telly. And we were like, oh, go on then. And then we were like, biggest fans, bought the album. A, <laughs> we need something to do a musical version of our industry, really. <laughs> there you, uh, go. you know, and, and uh, like parody all the big names. That'd be quite cool. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God, my brain is already going there. It's already going there. Oh, well, that'd be amazing. That'd you don't amazing. need much encouragement, do you, Steve? So. No, I don't. <laughs> I've already, I've done the whole podcast thing, I've already hit and record, um, uh, but I, one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about was that I only just found out, you see, so you're based out in Devon, yeah? That's right, yeah. We were just in Devon um, uh, uh, a couple of weeks lockdown. ago, just before lockdown, yeah. How are we, I think we, so you're out Torquay way, is that right? Yeah, so we're uh, we're in Torbay. We're right in the middle of the bay. So uh, not quite Paynton, not quite Torquay, just in between the two, really. Just in between the two. It's beautiful out there. Yeah. What were you doing down here then? We went on a well. We were avoiding fireworks was the original plan, and then <laughs> lock then lockdown got um, got announced. So we were in the Black Hills. So um, yeah, right on Axminster. the yeah Axminster, right on the border there. But we went. Yeah. to, Have you ever been to uh, Fingal Bridge? Where Fingal Bridge? Fingal Bridge. Yeah. No, but I, I, 
I kind of feel I want to. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> you mate, absolutely it should. It was one of the most stunning places I've ever been. In my, it's just like in this valley. There's a little pub there on a river. It is absolutely beautiful. Oh, absolutely beautiful. You couldn't take a bad photo. It was just gorgeous. yeah. The photos looked amazing. Yeah, didn't feel like I was in. Well, the we're UK. very lucky here. We got Dartmoor and that kind of thing. When the lockdowns, um, when the lockdowny stuff's finished and we're all back to normal-ish, then uh, you should come and see us. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I'll be well up for that. Uh, that We'll take you to Fingal Bridge. Yeah, you could take us there. And we live right on the beach, uh, which is nice. A nice wow. little beach here. So that would be cool. So yeah. we can come and do beachy stuff. That would awesome. be awesome. That would be awesome. I'll hold you to that. <laughs> so let's get into the meat of things then, shall we? So um, maybe you can talk a little bit about where your love for dogs. I mean, I know this is a huge topic. Maybe you can abridge it as much as you like. Um, where your love for dogs, how you got into dog training, um, how you ended up where you are today, Andrew. Where I am today, oh yes, <laughs> dizzying heights of uh, Andy, Andy Dunn. Well, uh, uh, I've got a human psychology background, so I used to work with humans, and um, and then I had my own my own breakdown, the mother of all breakdowns, really. So just because you know about stuff doesn't mean that you're immune from it, and uh, and in fact, maybe even more so, it could be hard. So I had my mother of all breakdowns, <clears throat> and uh, and that was a transformative period for me. Uh, and I got myself into a bit of a pickle. Uh, and it was one of those times when, you know, self-reflection was really forced on me, really. And it was also a time where uh, my father, sadly, he he'd, uh, his cancer had come back and then we lost him. And then so I was kind of home. I, I'd moved back home because of my own uh, my own kind of situation. And, and so it's mum and I, really, me and my mother and uh uh, and I, re- I was really devoted to her and, and she had her own care needs because she was disabled. So I thought, right, what do I do now? So uh, I started to feel a bit better in myself. And I thought, you know what? I just want to look after mom. I want to look after mom. And uh, we talked about stuff and I, and uh, mom was typical mom kind of, oh, no, you've got to go off and do your own thing. And I'm <laughs> like, yeah, but I want to be here for you. So we decided we'd have this kind of golden girl style relationship um, <laughs> in the home and that was all hunky-dory and that's how it started and, and so during my own therapy this is the amazing thing of the universe I uh, my therapist his brother is John Roberts now John he's retired now but you may have heard of John because he was really uh, instrumental in working with positive animal husbandry within a zoo setting okay so he started to do stuff in the late 80s early 90s which is like really going to be to kind of take it for granted now uh so i got to meet him and i got to spend some time with him i got to spend uh 12 18 months with him going around different places and thinking this is really cool this is really interesting uh and it was him who said to me well why don't you think about doing something in the domestic animal market like around dogs so that's how my shift came over and i and, and uh so this was about oh, about 10 years ago now uh, sadly, my mother, uh, she went and got cancer herself, uh, and I lost her a couple of years after making that choice. So I, I felt a bit stranded at the time because you get you, sometimes in life things happen, don't they? And you think, what the hell was all that about? Um, you know, you go through so much, it's intense. And then you come out the other and think, wow. So uh, I thought, I don't want to go back to do the human stuff. I've started this little journey by doing some just some studies and doing some courses for dogs. And that's how I shifted over, <clears throat> and uh, uh, and it built from there. Really, it built from there. And for me, um, coming from human 
psychology. This is my thing. If anybody who's heard me speak before, they know this is my thing. Uh, I was really interested in the huge kind of operant bias that we have in our industry, mm. which is cool if you're training, right? Because you're training, so learning about stuff. But, but not enough gets thought about regarding the dog's experience, mm-hmm. the neurological, neurological, physiological, emotional experience of the dog. Mm-hmm. And when I first started out, uh, I was talking to some of the colleagues that I built up in the early days and they were like, oh, Andy, you're not dealing with humans anymore, they're dogs. Uh, because we, we've kind of been pushed along this kind of Skinner-esque view that, yeah, we kind of know they're emotional, but we, we don't know what they feel. So therefore, we'll just look at behavioral output. So uh, over the last kind of 10 years, I've just been pushing that a little bit more and thinking, well, is it really that different? And learning more about the neurology and the physiology and linking in with some amazing people like Sarah Fisher, of course, uh, Kathy Murphy, Dr. Kathy Murphy, so we get the doctor bit. Uh, and uh, thinking, yeah, actually, do you know what? It's not a huge leap to think about the dog's experience because no. we all feel stuff, right? Yeah. We all have a need for relief when we're in those stress situations. So there you go. That's my little story. And that's where I'm at now. Wow, thanks so and the much. human psychology stuff is really important because uh people say oh it must be really useful working clients of course it is because it because you're dealing with people i think that's really Mm -hmm. important um but also uh even on other levels you know just looking at our industry our colleagues uh i set up a uh uh emotional health support service with the iscp which is which is an educator the international school of canine psychology and behavior and then when I got uh, the privilege, the fortunate to be able to um, have the chair at uh, Interdogs, Association of Interdogs, um, we have members here in the room, <laughs> uh, uh, that was one of the first things I put in. Uh, and we are, I think we are actually the only uh, member association that has independent emotional health support. Really? That's so it all comes around, everything's connected really. Which I have messaged actually once. Yeah. I've sent an email once. Yeah, I do. Um, and it's one of the reasons why I picked into dogs. Um, I just, everyone, uh, Lisa was um, a big part of it when I was signing up, and she was just so kind. And I was like, I want to be part of this organization. It seems kind. Yeah. So that's. I mean, we'll get into this later on, but there's a, there's a, a plethora of organizations out there to join. And and, and I know that you're, you're um, making making inroads into maybe organizing the organizations is that the right way to put it i don't know but i wanted to talk about the uk charter a bit later on well what an incredible story that is um i know that nat is probably chomping at the bit Mm -hmm. right now to talk about um emotions in dogs um i don't know if you're familiar with nat and her irish wolfhound drax but um if you're not you will be soon i'm sure (laughs) Of course, and I and I am I am a Facebook follower. Yeah, I what you I mean, what an amazing way to find yeah. your way into the industry as well. And it's lovely hearing people's stories. And you must bring so much else with you that isn't the trainer side, because I think a lot of us get into it by by doing the old sit down stand routine, um, and some of us move out of that some of us adjust the amount of training versus behavior we're doing um i certainly i mean i actually it's a weird it's a weird pressure because sometimes i sit there and i look at all my dogs and they're just asleep 
and I'm thinking I should be doing something with them should I you know should I teach them some more things and then and then the kind of sensible Nat says they're all happy and they're safe that's the most important thing they are happy they're safe they have choices that's pretty much all I aim for with my dogs and I am happy to take the eye rolling silly looks when I say to anyone that tries to get fish or mouse to sit they don't know anything they think I'm joking <laughs> I'm like no they, they don't know they don't know any commands apart from their name that's all they need to know <laughs> I think you know what that is such a beautiful thing you've just said there about them being uh, kind of relaxed and safe I think that's really lovely and I think um I'm uh I'll give you a plug here why not uh i'm doing it i've been asked to talk at the behavior conference next year nice. which is all a bit scary uh but I, I try not to do kind of big stuff but that's more me uh trying to stay in the shadows but it doesn't always work like that uh but um and this is what i I'm, uh, and, and, I, and i pulled kathy murphy in so it's gonna be like a two-parter because i think we need to challenge some of this in a in an evidence-based way, but look at the psychology and the, and, the, and the philosophical aspect about why we, as a species, forget about the dog training, but uh, are obsessed about outcome regarding behavior. So we want to put behavior on a continuum of good to bad. We're really good at that. So we've decided that's good, that's bad, that's inappropriate, that's this, that's that, that's illegal. You know, we do all these <laughs> things. And of course, from a social cohesion point of view, rule of law, that kind of stuff, then it's important because... If I popped down the shops now to get some jammy dodges and I stuck them in my pocket and didn't pay for them, we kind of decided that's wrong, right? So that's right. <laughs> so I think this is what's fed into this thing about somehow we have to have control over outcome. And especially, uh, you know, when we think about what formulated a lot of the dominance model stuff in back in the day was more about the paternal, uh, the uh, patriarchal society we had because men kind of like control. They like control over their wives, their kids, and over animals. So it all feeds in, this narrative feeds in. So I'll be exploring all this stuff and, and swinging it around. But uh, we have to just recognize what is our narrative. And that might not necessarily be the dog's experience. That's the point. And the big issue for me about what I call the opera merry-go-round is that if we just focus on judging behavior and deciding we're going to change it, then we'll continue having these debates and discussions and arguments about is that aversive, is this positive, is this or this kind of thing. And everything's on the table. If we step back, however, and start thinking about the animal's experience, mm. the animal's processing needs, processing styles, learning capacities, all this kind of stuff, then that debate actually gets pushed to one side. And it's better for us as professionals when working with a client, I like to call them carers, primary carers, to help shift that narrative for them. Because... If we just keep saying, oh, yeah, we're going to do this training and I'm a positive uh, reinforcement trainer and that's and then say all the reasons why I think that's cool. But we're still just manipulating and changing behaviors. They're likely to shift anywhere on that spectrum of positive to punitive. Mm -hmm. But if we let them realize, oh, actually, your reactive dog, the reason is because that dog is sensitive. It's sensitive around other dogs. It's socially sensitive. When we start using words like care, when we start using words like support, mm -hmm. it shifts what the uh, carer can do for that dog. And I think this is what we just got to think about. So that little thing I'm going to be doing at the behavior conference, we'll be looking at that. And then the good thing is, because I'm going to be talking about this stuff. If, if it was a headline, it'd be come and listen to a bloke you've not heard about, give his opinion on stuff. 
<laughs> that might not sell it very well. So we've got Cassie coming along, who's going to look at the neuroscience because she's got it. Uh, and um, I, I put out a blog last year, actually, it was this year, actually, uh, called Phantom of the Opera, which is just a, nice. uh, about <laughs> looking I at I read that. Stuff. It was good. Yeah. Oh, brilliant. Oh, good. Because, you know, it, it had 20,000 views in three days, which is pretty good for a first blog thing. Um, it's had a lot more to say. But um, uh, I felt it was a piece about compassion and empathy. It's not saying, you know, Operant training is bad. It's just a case of we've got this hugely powerful tool. But at some point, we do have to stop and ask the dog, what is it that I can reinforce for you that will actually innately be beneficial to you? Yeah. Not just because I think it's cool or mm -hmm. that I think it's more appropriate as a behavior. But I got a lot of flack from that because uh, uh, because of the dog industry, right? Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> Yeah, because people thought I was pointing fingers at certain parts of our community, and I, and I never mentioned anybody. I never mentioned ABA trainers. I never mentioned anything. It's just a case of, let's think about it. For example, the example I gave in that, and it's a good one, really, pulling on the leash. Right? It's a really, it's a stock in trade, training 101. 101 ways to deal with it. Loads, and, and equally as many tools on the market. Mm. But what if the dog was pulling because of generalized anxiety? What if the dog's pulling because they can't cope with the traffic? What if the dog's pulling because they're triggered by something? And I think this is where a lot of people, they'll go to training and they'll learn some loose leash walking, works really well in the village hall, around the field. But there are points on the on the walk when the pulling comes back and they're just doing the stop, start, stop, start, round and round, whatever they're doing. But they're not understanding that the, that pulling is actually communicating to them that that nervous system's been triggered by the dog. Yeah. So I think we're doing people a disservice sometimes by just keep selling them training solutions somehow if you train more then everything will be all right but as we know with some of the behavioral cases we see extra training is the last thing this dog needs yeah. in that sense because they're struggling to process stuff as it is yeah you've, you've uh, really neatly summed up you know the difference to a kind of training approach versus a behaviorist approach I mean you need both sets of skills obviously to be good at any of them but um I was talking to a couple of behaviorist friends earlier in the year and we were saying lucid walking is the one thing that we would never um offer to to be able to solve or fix because if we see a behavior case where the dog is pulling on a lead that's the least of that dog's problems mm -hmm. yeah it's the biggest think... problem for the human but actually to solve it or, you know, it, you may not ever, you, that dog may need some serious changes to environment, lifestyle, safety, trust, all sorts. Um, it's such a hard sell as well, isn't it? Yeah. I, I think I, 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 I jotted down the, the carers there. I really like that, that you use the word carers. I think that's really, really good. But um, it, to try and get that, that point across to someone I mean, you know, I, I deal with, um, we do a lot with puppies and a lot of people are like, I've, I've had it before emails saying, well, we're going away on holiday in three weeks. My dog's eight weeks old. I'd like them to be able to walk on a loose lead and have a recall because I'm going on holiday and I don't want to be pulled around the beach or something along those lines, you know, and trying to get that idea across to people in the language, this is why I wrote down carers, because I think that's a good start, isn't it? Because if you can position them as a carer rather than a owner guardian whatever whatever other word you might use then we can get a point we can get the point across that it's 
how your dog feels is more important than what he does a lot of the time. Um, you know, and I, I think that language is, is really important. I've been, whilst driving to a client's house at the moment, um, I see this young Border Collie dog that they've been walking around the roads. I imagine they've got really good intentions of socialising their dog to the roads and it's pulling like mad away from them. You know, that's not a loose lead problem. That's a dog that doesn't need to be walked there right now. Mm. (laughs) And I think there's a definite correlation anyway, period, I think, regarding pulling on the leash and uh and nervous system response so even so i live on a beach here and um uh i live in a house actually not in a beach obviously. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh if you saw me being dragged over the road by my dogs uh it's because they're really excited because they're going to the beach now they walk pretty well around town that's fine but when we go into the beach it's a bit like going into disney world with two little kids you either Ooh, say yes. stop it calm down or you think yeah let's go yeah so i think yeah let's go let's just go they're on a harness great let's just get over there and, and yeah. let you off because you yeah. um and i think how dogs feel is really important i, I use this little analogy I, I you know again people might have heard me say this one but it's a good one i think and I give it to my clients. Uh, it's, it's, it's the snake analogy. I'm very, I'm very aware that some people might get triggered by the thought of a snake. I know, but um, I, I haven't got an image of one, so I'm just going to say. <laughs> but um, so, and we all have a, we all have a snake thing. So for me, it's heights. Some people it might be mice, it might be spiders, it might be all sorts. Who knows? Could be avocados. I don't know. But the thing is, we have great <laughs> white sharks. Have <laughs> but yeah, but I think you know. Um, do you know what? No, uh, uh, you have to be wet to be bitten by sharks. You know that it's a fact. It's a fact. Yeah, there's, yeah there's no I'm in a swimming pool sometimes. Yeah, they're usually the inflatable ones. But yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they're not. They're not even real, Andy. They're in my head. Hang on a minute. Have you, have you not seen the film Sharknado? <laughs> yeah. No, I haven't. <laughs> oh, that throws your theory right out the water, mate. Literally. Right out the water. But that's a really good point there, Natalie. Really good point there. <clears throat> because some stuff is in our head. Some stuff is how the dog perceives stuff. It might not be rational. It might not be reality. Uh, <clears throat> so snake analogy. So if I put a snake there then, uh, Steve, next to you, and you don't like snakes much, you're going to have a instant neurological and physiological response. You're going to get stressed. That in turn will trigger your behavior and, they, and this is this is important because they're likely to be reflexive behaviors so you haven't thought about them you're not learning from stuff you're just kicking off because your nervous system is gone <clears throat> now if i as the calm bystander have decided that i don't like your behavior much uh that it's bad that it's naughty that it's whatever that is my narrative this is the point it's not your mm. experience so if I'm going to purely change your behavior, I only have two options. I either treat you punitively, so I try and correct you, tell you off, punish you. I might be able to stop the behavior, but I haven't changed how you feel about the snake. And I didn't listen to what you were trying to communicate. What we have to recognize on our side of the training fence is that the same applies for positive reinforcement. If I'm purely looking at changing your behavior, I'm not interested in your experience. I just want to change it. There is a risk that I end up getting a behavior that I find more appropriate, but still hasn't helped you. Mm. So the snake dance is a good one when I speak to my clients, because I'm like, so actually the problem there, if you think about it, isn't the behavior. It is if I've decided it is, if you've decided you don't like that dog's behavior, that is your narrative. Same with kids. If I'm like, 
oh, can you get your kids to behave? That's my narrative, not necessarily what they're experiencing, what they're doing. Uh, if the behavior itself isn't the problem, and neither is the snake, actually. It's how the, how Steve feels about the snake. So <clears throat> when we think in these terms then and we start educating people, we've got to stop just educating about why punishment is bad and why this and why that. We don't need to do that if we start educating more about that dog's experience. And I use two little analogies, which I give to my clients, and we stick with these all the way through. Because for me, if we think about it, there are only two types of behavioral output. There is a self-regulated one and a dysregulated one. Self-regulated one means that regardless of how you are feeling, regardless of how the dog is feeling, we are able to kind of moderate that behavior. If you listen to Kathy Murphy, I don't know whether you heard her at Geek Week with her puppy one. Oh my God, it's great. So um, the parts of the brain in humans that come online for helping to moderate behavior don't come online until our early 20s. They're definitely not there for dogs when they're young. So uh, the one thing that gets imprinted fast and hard is fear responses. Yeah. But the parts of the brain that deal with moderation on there. So self-regulated, dysregulated. So I use these two analogies. If you imagine the brain has lots of little doors in it. So this is for the dog as well. We need as many doors to stay open for that dog to safely, calmly and rationally process what's going on. Stress pain, pressure, especially social pressure, which is a big one when we think about your reactive dog or sensitive dog, as I call it, big door closes. So when that snake's there, Steve, you've got no doors open, you're not processing, you can't process stuff. Even if I said two plus two, you couldn't answer it because you can't process anything. Uh, the other analogy, I use the good old bucket analogy. I know some of our T-Touch Ace friends like the candles, but it's all the same thing. So the, all, the nervous system is the other thing. So think about it, brain processes stuff, nervous system responds to stuff. Uh, the empty bucket denotes the nervous system, the amount of water in the bucket, how much that nervous system's engaged. When we start letting our clients know these things, they can take on some quite complex principles really easily by having good analogies. Mm -hmm. So it's like, have, are we opening doors for your dog now or are we closing them? Is your dog in a position when you are asking them to do something that they can actually process what you're doing? Is that dog being exposed to something in the environment where they can process, especially socially process, or is that bucket or has that bucket filled too quick and they can't do it, so they're dysregulating? And I, I find that actually in that first 20 minutes of meeting my client, I need to sell them this and I need to sell them them hard so they get it. They don't have to remember it, they just need to get it. And it's amazing that people do. I think what we need more education of in our industry is how do we as practitioners sell this better to our clients and get them on board really quickly. And it is about using the right terms. Mm -hmm. You know, instead of writing a report, support plan, uh, instead of reinforcement, that kind of thing, I use the word relief. What relief does this dog need? What relief can we give them? Uh, using words like care or sensitive, all these kind of things, they, they, they start to shift their, their narrative then. Mm. Because the two biggest things that we have to do as a practitioner is, before we do anything else, is manage expectations, because invariably that's a big thing, and shift those narratives. And, and before we even lay a hand on the dog, we've got to mm. get the clients to do things. So these things are really important. And I think um, we have in the past uh, felt that mm, emotions are a tricky thing, aren't they? And, uh, you know, we're going to anthropomorphize if we start trying to work out what the dog's feeling. Yeah. 
But actually, we don't have to. We can just be a bit empathetic. And when we think about Sarah, the good old Sarah Fisher, and free work, free work is amazing because it gives us a chance to do good observations. It's, it's about slowing stuff down. Uh, when I do setup work with my dog, dog, dogs, um, the first thing I need to learn from the client dog is what are your social preferences? How do you need to process things socially in order to feel safe? And if I'm going to use positive reinforcement, I'll turbocharge your innate coping strategies. And I would say probably at least two thirds of the dogs I see, they haven't actually got a problem with dogs per se. They have a problem with the fact that they are big processors. They need to process stuff. You see that even with their human interactions, they want to really olfactorily process. But they've got a history of learning that social engagement is thrust on them before they've, had, they've finished the social processing. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is the doors, the brain and the bucket thing. Those two things go really well together, I think. I really like that um, open door analogy because it's it's actually, it's not, it's more than an analogy. It's actually a practical skill as well. So the way we've got so far with Drax is that the doors are always open. Mm -hmm. And I think the, I see a lot of, of young dogs that suddenly get a harness and lead phobia and they are dragged out for a walk. And I, I honestly think um, that this is because we are um, operant led and we're going for a walk. We are completing a task regardless. So we leave the house and we slam the access to the safe place the moment that we've left. And if the dog is a thinker, like you say, like a, a processor, we're halfway down the road before they've even been able to, you know, think anything about um, the outside world. Gru is a real overthinker. Um, I don't know how he spends so long doing it because he only has one brain cell. But um, every time we go for a walk, he has to go to the end of the driveway, check anything to worry about, who's been here. OK, now I can get in the van rather than. Everybody else who, you know, terriers don't care. They're straight in there. They're in my pockets already. So I really like that. I really like that a lot. Yeah, that's a really good, <clears throat> good example there as well. And another example why we have to be really careful. Uh, I just want to say this again. I'm not anti-training at all. Because mm. guess what? I train. But um, <laughs> for some of these dogs, like the example just given there, processing the minutiae of the environment is already taxing without an owner who's saying sit come down stay watch me watch me watch me all these kind of things and the dog's like bloody hell like, you know i'm just trying to <laughs> uh yeah put those things sorry i've swore on uh, live on air there no nah, you're right <laughs> uh, uh, but uh we'll stick to the b words no effort <laughs> uh, uh, so yeah so I, I think we just have to be mindful for me it's about slowing stuff down i, I don't see any difference in supporting a dog with challenges, to support your human challenges or child for that matter. And especially when, when we think about just the neurology and physiology, we just break it down. The science is there. We don't have to wait for more. This is what Kathy says, you know, it is there. It's been there for a long time. Mm. When I speak to my human psychology colleagues, they're just gobsmacked that we talk in, we talk in terms of quadrants. Mm. So when I did my psychology degree, so I said a degree in psychology. So, you know, it's like pretty thorough. I think we might have spent an hour one windy, one windy afternoon touching on quadrants because it's just not relevant, really. But the dog industry has been built on it somehow that it, that is it. 
this is the thing, regardless of all the other stuff that we know, all the other mechanisms that go on. And uh, it should be a part of a much broader toolkit to get best outcomes. We love I a think, label, though, don't we? We love a label. We love a label. And also, <laughs> I do think this is going to get me into a lot of trouble now. So please, uh, you know, send any hate mail to Santa. So pl- please <laughs> clip it out and use it as a promo. Is that what you mean? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right, is it? Yeah. Andrew Hale says. Hang on. <laughs> just just going to note the time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, it is that. This is hard. So we say we. I don't. Uh, but honestly, I'm a bit of a lazy bugger to be honest. So I don't. I'm not the person who gets up at five in the morning. Thinking, I'm going to train all day. <laughs> I'm thinking, right? The dogs have lay down. Good. I'm going to go back to bed. <laughs> but I think for some of our colleagues, training is really important. It's an important part of their lives. And we and and, and I'm not saying this in a negative way because I get it. But quite often, how people come into the industry and what they get back from what they do is about their own story, their own journey, their own compensations for things that have happened in the past, their own way to regain some control in their lives, their own way to uh, help emotional health. It's important. The risk, though, is that we just end up doing stuff without always necessarily wondering if the dog is engaging with it. Now, we are really good at not seeing the reality of what's in front of us. Uh, I went to see uh, a friend of mine going back a little while and uh, it was like a general fun day. And there's a lady there with a dog doing the kind of fun agility. And she was like, oh my God, my dog loves it. And I thought, oh my God, your dog really doesn't. Your dog is, it looks really happy, but it's wired within an inch of its life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I found out this lady's actually a dog trainer. I was thinking, oh, it's interesting because maybe you don't see it sometimes. So I think this is part of the thing around the kind of operant side of our industry, which is a big part of it, obviously. It's that it's it's um it's something that we can do very easily and it's something that we can focus on very easily. I think when it comes to behaviour though, we just have to kind of allow ourselves to look at the bigger picture and say the science is there. When we think about things just in a very simple way, quite it's quite a technical thing, I know, but why do we have a brain? Well, we were all nervous system once. This is what we've got to remember. So if we go back long enough. Mother Nature, multi-organism species. She created the nerve net, which became a nervous system. Uh, a bit like jellyfish, really, just thrashing around. Uh, and that was like that for a long time until Mother Nature thought, well, this isn't particularly efficient. So that's when we had the early neocortex come along. So when we look at it, for me, these things are really important. We've just got to step back and think, right, so the dog has the same equipment here. It takes on information through sensory integration. That's having uh, how our senses feed the brain. The nervous system, been with us a long time, but the nervous system's always listening in. Now, in the best scenario, the brain, our conscious side of the brain, has a chance to moderate that. So that's why we don't go around punching each other in the face all the time. Well, some of us don't. Uh, <laughs> tempting, I know. Uh, but it's the same equipment for the dogs. And um, we take it for granted as humans, abstract, normal humans, I'll put us all into that category. I don't know you that well, but maybe. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm, I'm, I'm actually more jellyfish than human, I think. Fair enough. <laughs> um, we take for granted that, uh, you know, over 95% of the processing we do, we do subconsciously, we don't even think about it. Now, if you are an anxious person, if you have an anxious period in your life, even if you just watched a horror film and gone to bed, you're suddenly aware of more stuff where that filtering is not being done subconsciously. When we think of our dogs, especially... 
you know, poor old collies and this kind of thing who are struggling big time. Uh, we have to start slowing stuff down. I've worked with, with um, you know, collies, uh, uh, Belgian shepherds, mallies, all the, all the kind of usual stuff, which the perceived wisdom is that somehow we have to give these dogs jobs to do and they have to be high energy jobs. I think that's great for them to have a bit of an outlet, but almost, I'm talking anecdotally here, almost exclusively with every one of these dogs I've worked with, the real benefits have come by the opposite, slowing it down, going beyond their breed and just tapping into the mammal side, which is, yeah, just learn to process a bit better, learn the benefits of processing and being able to self-regulate better because that's ultimately how they can start to think, right, I can be the moment. And this is why I love scent work so much because there's any mindfulness that we do, <clears throat> the closest thing we have in dogs really is scent work because mm. when that nose is going, they are in the moment. <clears throat> They're not kind of shadowing stuff from the past or whatever that's what changed my collie definitely because he he could have slotted i mean we got him um they're all rescues here anyway but um he could have easily slotted into the give me a job give me a job um but that comes back to the social pressure i mean he's creaky old 14 year old now and i'm sure if i asked him to do an agility course he would be crawling along doing it at the end because he desperately wants to do what what mum's asking I would never ask him to obviously um but the scent work has kind of slowed his processing down and he now trusts himself in social situations with other dogs that he can walk off and disengage rather than having to be little Mr Pac-Man and shouting and swearing at them to tell them to go away um and you know that knock-on benefit i find that really hard to articulate um because it's everything's such a longer term thing and you're, you're right it's it's it worries me that uh the industry in part is still selling this you know do four weeks and you'll be fixed type thing because i i see it as more of a way of life really with your dog that that i'm trying to sell an ethos almost of, of mm. you know learning about um how to live with your dog safely obviously there's elements of training that come into that but um i do, yeah i think the longer i've been in it the 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 more i've kind of drifted <laughs> into less a lot less training and i sometimes feel a bit of a fraud because i'm just sitting there having a conversation with someone about letting their dog sniff and <laughs> paying me a lot of money here but it's it's desperately what the dog needs but yeah it trying to sell to the owner or the the caregiver that that's what the dog needs is is the trickier bit sometimes i'm really lucky i have some amazing people that i work with and they they kind of sort me out because they're already halfway there but I, I know that that's not true of everybody in the industry it's certainly not everybody's experience there's another point here as well um i think a lot of people that come i mean i'm a trainer not a behaviorist so a lot of people that come to me have either been online or they've looked for celebrity dog trainers or they've seen things on tv and uh and they see people that do a lot of training for you know as what we're talking about and again you know obviously i'm a dog trainer so I, I do a lot of training um but it's not sexy is it you know if you're sticking videos up on your social media if your dog's snoozing i mean i might i, I find those videos amazing <laughs> maybe that's wrong. what we need to do we need to get a dog trainer on 
need to do. But you know what I mean? Like, you, so you may have, you know, people that are out there like like doing a really good job of, of portraying themselves on social media and things like that and getting and getting lots of flashy training videos and, you know, dogs jumping through here and things going on like Steve that. Steve does put himself down there, though. Like, there's nothing wrong with just being a dog trainer, but you don't always just look at, the, you know, no, the dog. You, no. you're always observing behaviour and bringing yeah. it into it. Yeah, and I think that that's another conversation we could have about where the where the role, you know, the roles just just all link in together, don't they? It's um, I, I've always had this this dream of of like this this constant line of you know vet to trainer to behaviourist to you know where everyone is constantly talking to one another and maybe everyone goes on the you know when when you do a consultation you're all there you know what i mean you're all standing there and you're all looking and everyone's a bit like that, that show program, yeah the yeah. doctors you know when they get I, a, 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 yeah. that diagnosis show yeah, yeah and right. I, maybe one day maybe one day that's what it will be like but i think you know you you're especially if you're new to the industry as well trying to get um your head around social media you know what should I be putting out in order to get people to come to me and and me to be a, a, a you know look on social media like I'm a good dog trainer you know you you would be doing you know loads of loads of I've taught my dog to spin in a circle where they are jumping over and you know through a ring of fire or whatever you know that kind of thing I think it's I think you know <clears throat> one point that um I've another point I want to make but on that thing I think some of the best people I know who get dogs are dog trainers mm. who do behavior. Uh, they might not have a piece of paper from Lincoln or whatever else, you know, and that's a part of the industry that I, I'm worried about this push towards an overly kind of um, uh, academic clinical model for behavior because, uh, you know, we need to have people who are able to, utilize a great skill set and if they can step into the animal's experience at the same time that's the most important thing but there is a bigger picture problem here this is the thing societally culturally the zeitgeist is wrong so that that, that is a huge that's a huge statement to make but mm. everything is back to front uh, and with as trainers behaviorists our, res, our colleagues in rescue we're the blunt end of that because it starts with breeding of course it starts with all the other stuff that goes through and it starts with the public perception of dogs and um you know we're in our nice little safe bubble having a chat now but the norm in most people's heads is still the dominance model it is still that somehow that the dogs have to be subservient but this is my issue with the opera merry-go-round because while we still keep talking in opera terms to caregivers that it keeps giving oxygen to all parts of that debate We've got to shift this now, even with puppies, without me, without meaning to. <clears throat> here in the UK, obviously, we've got a comprehensive education system for humans. We've kind of, by accident, created a comprehensive education system for puppies. Now, from my point of view, uh, the first thing I want to know when I meet a puppy is that thing about preferences again. What are your social processing preferences? What is your learning style? Uh, and... Uh, uh, and then if we're going to build a kind of a socialization program, I don't like that word very much, but anyway, but we know what it means, mm. uh, that it's based upon the needs of that individual dog, mm. because that, that's the best way to move forward. But for any uh, trainers listening who think, yeah, this is all great, but like we said earlier, this is a tough sell. Actually, I found it isn't, actually. Really? There are some clients who just can't get it, but they're very, very few, because what I know is that they really love their dogs. 
And I also know that the dog that they see at home a lot of the time, which is cuddly and caring and fun and soppy, that is a big difference to the dog that's kicking off and trying to kill everybody, you know, that, that, or whatever it is that they've called you in for. So actually, when we start talking in terms of that dog's emotional need and experience, the vast majority of clients, they're, they're just relieved to build into that narrative, actually, in my experience, because because it's what it's about and it actually makes a lot of sense to them. And if we use the right analogies, then we can bring them along on that journey for them to get those best outcomes. Because for some of these dogs, all the training in the world ain't going to help, sadly. Mm -hmm. But it is a part of it. Training is important. It's absolutely important. But the more targeted that can be, support that dog's individual needs, the more powerful it becomes. Um, a very well-known trainer, I won't name him because it's not very, but anyway, he's very well-known, uh, said to me, he knows he can get an animal to do anything. He, he works with different animals. When he goes to see a behavior case, he has to hang that hat out the door. And I thought, my God, that's amazing to hear you say that. Because mm. he knows he could go in there and get that dog to do something. Mm. Because he's amazing at training. But he has to park that and start by asking, okay, dog, what have you got to tell me? And I thought that's really awesome. It's really awesome. Yeah, I like that. That's really but nice. there is a lot of pressure on us in the industry. One of the big things, I've I'm, I'm, uh, just written a blog post, actually. It's not out yet, but it's coming out in the next couple of days. It's another one that will get me into trouble probably. Uh, called <laughs> Be, Beware the Elbit Road. <clears throat> Beware the Elbit Road. Because uh, for me, the Elbit Road is about a story of these people who get told, follow the Elbit Road and you'll find the answers. Somebody will have the power to give it you. And actually, at the end of that, it was a con. And the real answers came from within them themselves. And I see there's so much in our industry, um, the, the big rise in business coaches, life coaches, some of them are very reputable, many aren't, uh, who are using mental health to suck you in, you know, yeah, you, you don't feel good enough, right? You don't feel that you can do that, right? Just playing into that and they're like, oh my God, that's me, that's, you're talking to me. Um, these courses, you know, um, be a dog trainer on a weekend, all these kind of things, um, building up this thing about doesn't matter whether you're any good or not, as long as you can master social media, you'll be able to do stuff. Mm -hmm. Being a bit of an old timer, having spent years building up a reputation and doing it the old school way, I just feel uncomfortable with that. And I don't, I'm not sure it's good for people's health, emotional health, because whilst you might be able to make a fast buck now, mm. where's the longevity for you? Mm. So I think this is a bigger picture. From my point of view, there are two things we need to look at. One is the industry itself needs to step up here. You know, the organizations, associations who take the money from people need to be doing more about the pastoral care for people. And secondly, us in this room now and others who are, and I, and I would include myself here. So I, I run a successful business. I've done quite well for myself. I don't post a lot of stuff on my social media. It's either dogs or Dolly Parton because my husband. <laughs> that's kind of what you get. I think people get, that. well, yeah, when a friend requests him and find all this stuff out, it's like, yeah, well. Here's my dogs and here's Dolly Parton. Yeah. <laughs> what, we, what we should be putting is uh, more about, yeah, it's hard. And yes, I get imposter syndrome. And yes, I get burnout. And yes, I get compassion fatigue. And yes, I try and protect against these things. But it will happen. doesn't matter how big your profile is. In fact, I would argue the bigger your profile, the more you're going to keep getting it. Mm. doesn't matter how much money you've got in the bank. These things, going on some kind of coaching course is not the answer to this stuff. Uh, and if more of us spoke about our journeys, and this is why these kind of podcasts are great and the stuff that Jordan's been doing is great. Mm. And we need more of it, really. We need to kind of have a safe space where we can share our stories. It's very important too. 
so yeah, there's a lot of stuff. When you, if you step back, it, it's quite overwhelming, isn't it? You think, oh my God, it's really, you know. But we are making some great positives in the industry. You know, we've got the charter coming along nicely at the moment. And uh, I think um, a lot more people are getting more interested in the emotional response to things, the emotional drive to behavior. You know, people aren't necessarily just because they've been told that um, all behavior is driven by the environment or all behavior is this or that, that perhaps there might be a question mark over that. And, I, and people like Sarah Fisher pushing the boundaries all the time with observation and recognizing physiology and, and that kind of thing. I think it's an exciting time. It really is. And ever since starting this podcast, um, just talking to so many people, there's so much, you know, there's so much, you know, of, of this kind of thing, this, these kind of conversations going on. Um, I, I found it endlessly fascinating. I mean, you, you've, you've given us a great segue there to talk about the um, the charter, the UK Dog Behaviour and Training Charter. So maybe you can you can um, tell us about it um, and what the goals are. I think you've alluded to a little bit of it now, but um, yeah, it'd be really interesting to hear about that. Well, as always, there's a backstory. So... Um... I was uh, I was chairing dogs at the time, so um, uh, I was approached by somebody because I was relatively new to stuff, and nobody knows who I am. So this is the point. People, some people know who I am, whatever. But uh, but especially then, nobody did. So that's always an advantage to have again a look again because we keep having these misfirings with regulation. So I looked at it and, I, and it took me 12 months. So I just went away for 12 months and I just looked at it. I did a huge amount of research. I spoke to a lot of people, a lot of people who were involved with uh, the initial cork process, which was where it all started. And the people who then we had the offshoots with PetBC and ABTC and all these different offshoots. To try and work out what was going wrong. <clears throat> uh, I linked in with some amazing people. Um, there are many. So Sula Thefra, uh, Denise O'Moore, um, Carolyn, Monteith, Lorna Winter, Lisa Tenzendolma. There is a big list. I can't mention everybody, but I just started bringing in these people who've been around a lot longer than me and just got these different things. And it occurred to me that the reason that regulation hadn't happened is for a couple of reasons. One, trying to square the circle regarding mixed cultures, in other words, methodologies. From my point of view, if we're going to do something, we have to have that as one of our first lines in the stand. Because when I was a human doing human psychology stuff, we kind of don't drill holes in the back of people's heads to let the skulls out, uh, to let the demons out anymore. Mm -hmm. you know I mean? We just don't do it. Mm -hmm. At some point, somebody decided we're not going to do that anymore. It's not right. Yeah. So <clears throat> I think, um, you know, we have science on our side to be able to say, actually, as a profession in this country, we shouldn't be stringing dogs up. Shouldn't be deliberately, you know, inducing pain. Uh, but in the past, of course, every part of the industry was around that table. Nobody could agree on anything. So, um, uh, so that was one thing. And the second thing was that the process keeps getting manipulated by self-interests. Because, and this has happened again and again, uh, and uh, we've ended up with structures that end up being quite top-down heavy. Um, and yeah, you know, I won't mention organizations not found, them, but anyway, these kind of things happen. So, this is where the chart idea came from, and it was literally myself and a couple of the people on a at a premier inn on the side of the M5. That's how it started, it's very kind of uh, you know, clandestine. <laughs> and I came up with this idea about a central charter, a really simple but powerful document. 
that really drew a line in the sand regarding methodologies, tools, and professional conduct that had independent oversight. So in other words, organizations and associations who, to be fair, have probably, well have definitely, paid lip service to some of their own codes of ethics in the past, because it's easy, right? Because there's no oversight. To get the industry to step up and just say, well, we need to do it. Now, during this process, I learned that the government had looked at it a few times and we are risking, we were risking walking into a form of regulation, potentially like the German model, which would just be a licensing tick box exercise, or one organization would get the golden egg and we'd all be at the mercy of whatever that organization decided to do. So it gave me a bit of bargaining power. Uh, so that's where the chart came from. Very simple principle, giving maximum autonomy to organizations to do their thing, but signing up to a common guiding principle and then having independent oversight. So if there are complaints or, or um, grievances or any type of arbitration, that there is an independent element. So um, I managed to get all the main organizations and associations at the, at the time, we're talking a couple of years ago, to a roundtable meeting. And I insisted on it being in person. And this has been the magic for me. I could have spoke to people on the phone, but I thought, no, you're going to turn up. I'm going to really wave a carrot in your face here about what's coming on. And I did a little bit of shenanigans, just playing a few things after that. I just need to get you people who actually have the power in a room. Because if you meet over coffee and having nibbles, then you might realize that actually 95% of what we need to do, we can all agree on, actually. Mm -hmm. Why keep arguing over the 5%? Forget about the 5%. So we got them in the room and um, and it was just a gradual process. It was, and I just had to keep working it really hard to just get one more and one more and one more. So we've now got a really good group um, uh, at the moment. Uh, and we've got some newbies, we've got some, uh, um, some established and we've got some big names. The big ones for me, the big one for me really was APDT only because uh, obviously, they're an ABTC organization. There was a bit of resistance uh, at the, with some of the old governance there. The governance has changed recently because they've got new people in, in, uh, on the committee. But the, the main thing there was they put it to the vote of the members. So uh, I think oh, it was something like, yeah, brilliant. <laughs> something like 55, 60% of membership voted, which we all know how apathetic membership can be sometimes. Yeah. Uh, so that's an amazing turnout. And then 85% voted. I thought that, that is what I needed to hear was that the yeah. grassroots people thought, yeah, we need to do this. We need to do this. And um, so rather than being in competition with everybody, we're just saying to the public, look for that tick. Get that tick, you know what you're getting. You've got accountability, you've got assurances. Uh, and obviously, over time, we're looking at getting more and more organizations and associations to come and join us. But we've got this 10 in now. Um, the last one to come on board was KCAI. Um, uh, and, that, and also, uh, we've got the full operational machinery of the Kennel Club behind us. So it's looking good. And my main job as the coordinator um, uh, was to create a safe space for a consensus-led cooperative, rather than it being another organization. It's not an organization, the charter is not an organization. It is a group of organizations and associations around that common ideal. Uh, that's why we don't have a chair, we don't have a committee. 
it is me as the coordinator, just coordinate it. And um, I won't be the coordinator for much longer. This is a, um, uh, an exclusive for you because somebody else is going to take it over because I feel like I've done my bit. Okay. Uh, I've done my Sounds bit. like you've done uh, loads. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was hard. It was hard. And I think the main two things, I know I keep joking about it, but it is true. Uh, nobody knew who I was. And it was interesting when I spoke to, I remember picking up the phone to, to all these really important people saying oh my name's Andy and uh, I'm the chair for dogs and I just want to talk about regulation and all the kind of sucking through teeth and rolling of eyes it's like oh here we go again <laughs> so I, I had to really be uh, trying to persuade people and the, and the way that it was done was by talking this is the point yeah and getting people in a room and being there physically I traveled around the country to see people one-to-one uh, I was just like a just like a dog with a bone uh, <laughs> yeah so i but you know we've done an amazing thing and it's up to the industry now uh we've got a great opportunity here um especially with our colleagues at the kennel club uh with us who, who have obviously um a lot of experience with lobbying and government and that kind of thing so i think we've got a we've got a good opportunity here and then next year we'll be looking at getting uh new other associations and that who who meet the uh, meet the eligibility criteria to come and become signatories as well and we just keep building it great it's fantastic yeah there's yeah. lots of exciting stuff happening in the industry and you know i just i i hope we're in a different place in you know 10 20 years so that someone can need help with their dog and know who to go to you know that's as simple as it needs to be really isn't it and um well, that's the good thing about the scheme because it is that little tick you know and at yeah. some point um at the moment there's nothing mandatory obviously but uh down the line hopefully uh, we might be able to get it so the government recognise this as the self-regulatory framework. <clears throat> we'll really promote the tick as being that thing. And the good thing is, if you're a VSPDT trainer, INDT trainer, APDT, Interdogs, you know, um, uh, anybody, different organisations, but you have your own, your own kind of culture within your organisation, your own tribe, if you like, your own family. But we can all say, yeah, we've all got the tick. All of us. Mm. And it's the mm. first time that's really been done uh, where, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're a VSPT or MDT, we've all got the tick. So that person knows that if they find the tick, then they have these assurances. And that we have hopefully drawn a line. It's a big, important one. It's not been done yet before, which is crazy when you think about it, <clears throat> saying that actually those particular methods and those particular tools are not acceptable now. Um, and this is why I think government will like it, because... They like the idea of self-regulation. They like the idea of market freedom, which is what we still have. And they like the idea of being seen to have welfare considerations for, mm-hmm. for the dogs. You know? mm-hmm. Scotland, are, they, it's actually on their, on their uh, crab sheet at the moment, regulation for the dog industry. So I think we might be getting the first airing of this uh, within a regulatory governance framework within the next 12, 18 months which is amazing timing and it's very mm. exciting. Mm. Brilliant. It's really exciting, isn't it? So where can our listeners find out more about the charter then? What's the details? If they can go on there and have a little look about what you accept in terms of who gets the tick. Uh, so um, I'm just trying to think here because it sounds terrible, isn't it? Like, my, my... Oh, sorry, if I put you on the spot, I'm just <laughs> trying to do a seamless <laughs> link to the website. Yeah, you should do, and, 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 as, you, as indeed you should. So bear with me. 
Uh, why, yeah, why you why you look that up? Um, I did want to bring up um, a completely undog related, but um, I had Dolly Parton um, donated a, load, a large amount of money to the vaccine effort, didn't she? I read that the other day, which I thought was quite nice of Dolly. Yes, so um, uh, I think she she saved humanity basically. Ah, okay. Uh, so Kieran was telling me, uh, which is I knew that anyway. Uh, there's three people in our relationship, by the way. It's me. <laughs> Kieran and Dolly. <laughs> uh, so I, I learned about that. I learned about that early on. But I think that's great. You know, she, you know, I, I didn't really know much about Dolly Parton uh, until I met Kieran. Um, uh, just to let you know, when we first met, he said, oh, do you want to come to Wales with me? I'm, I'm going to see Dolly Parton in concert. You can, because Kieran's from Wales, you can meet my family and that kind of thing. I thought that's quite nice. So we stayed for two nights up in Cardiff. He went to see Dolly both nights, <laughs> so, uh, which I didn't know about until another. And then, uh, so the same concert twice. Uh, so our first romantic little trip away was me just basically in a in a hotel in Cardiff on my own. So, yeah. Waiting. Oh, so to come you back. didn't get a ticket. He, he hadn't got a ticket for I you. Didn't get a t- I didn't even get a ticket. Now, yeah, he got he got the tickets before he met me. So all okay. um, oh, right. Were you in the uh, hotel room nine till five? <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah. Dear, really. oh, dear. Oh, dear. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. I, I was there, there was a there was a party two doors down. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we're off. Here, we'll be happy. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've got the website. The, the only reason I was checking is because we've changed the last bit recently, and I, I want to make sure I got it right. So it's uh, ukdogcharter.org, uh, and also, if you look up UK Dog Charter on Facebook, there's a Facebook page there, and that's where we do all the kind of announcements. So it lists the 10 organisations, associations that are there. The main thing is that it says that the, if you, there's also a copy of the charter there, so you can download it or have a look at it. And the main principle is that um, organisations and associations that are signatories have shown that they check, support and monitor their professionals. Uh, and that they have their own grieving, grievance and um, complaints procedures with, a, with an, an ethics committee. And then that is overseen by the Independent Oversight Committee. And on there we have Dr. Mott J. Wolf, Dr. Robert Faulkner, Dr. Kathy Murphy, Trevor Cooper, uh, the, uh, the legal guy. So these are eminent people. Yeah. Uh, and, so, and this is, uh, again, again, the first time this has happened. So if somebody puts in a complaint against me, then interdogs will be expected to deal with that initially in-house um, because that's what it's all about, just making sure that we all recognise our obligations to do it properly. Um, and then if the complainant uh, doesn't isn't happy with the response, then they can put it to appeal. And then the evidence would go, and it's evidence-based. You know, we have a lot of he said, she said in our industry, as we know. Uh, so it's good to have an independent panel who can just look at the evidence and make a judgment. And the judgment is very simple. Does this contravene the points in the charter? And does this contravene that particular organization's code of ethics? Um, it's really simple, isn't it? It's yeah. so yeah. simple. You just think, being accountable. So, but before we we let you wander off into the night, Andy, um, I've got a there's a, a quote that I got from you when you were actually talking to Jordan, actually, which I really really like. I don't know if this is your own words. Correct me if I've got this wrong, but I loved it. So I wrote it down, and it goes something like this: um, "The only validation we need is from the dog in front of us." Oh, I love that. That is me. That is mine. That is uh, and this is the point. And this is what uh, this is what I think is important because. There's a lot of there's a lot of advice that's put out there on social media, especially, 
some of it free, a lot of it you have to pay for it, which is about somehow that validation has to come from externally. But actually, we have to start recognizing that the only truth is an authentic truth for us. And that the real validation does come from that dog in front of us. Ultimately, that's if we if we see anything much bigger than that, that way madness lies. You know, I, I've been offered a quite a few things in my time, and uh, it's for some people it might be fine. And I think some people they do want to get that spotlight on them, and and that's fine. And if they have the right personality and the right, right robust makeup for it, brilliant. Many people don't. Mm. And they get sold this idea of getting that spotlight, get sold of having that thing. And then they can't deal with it. And I know this for a fact, because with my support services that I've done in the past, I've spoken to so many of our colleagues who have been pushed down a route. This is why I, I call that um, the, the new blog, Beware the Yellow Big Road, mm. because it isn't always what it seems to be. Yeah. If you can lay that path yourself um, and you have that, that goal for something that is authentic for you, it will work and you'll get longevity that way. Another one of my little science sayings is, likes are vanity, reputation is sanity. Mm. <laughs> because, yeah. and it takes time to build that. You, you can't just do it with one really fancy social media campaign because guess what? People have moved on to the next fancy social media campaign, you know? Yeah, and you'll always like be trying to- oh. Authentic selves. Sorry, I muted myself there because my Jack Russell was shouting. I can hear her. <laughs> it's going, I don't want my time in a week. <laughs> um, thank you so, so much um, for coming on. Um, it's been brilliant. It's been really, really good. This is one of those ones where I'm like, I'm going to I'm gonna hang up and then I'm going to feel like I immediately need to go back and listen to it again yeah. because um, it's been so informative. And it's, uh... I feel really settled and reaffirmed. So do I, yeah. I hope that, I hope that does justice of of how much sense you talk that was really really nice it's like a podcast Good. hug it is <laughs> that's what you provided should, the podcast hug should we do a podcast <laughs> hug picture before oh we yes go? we need to do a picture okay right everybody smile so i don't get you looking awful ready there we go <laughs> lovely um i did my jazz hands then brilliant <laughs> I did my mum's dancing thumbs, so, you know. Oh, okay. That's <laughs> my <laughs> usual, isn't it? <laughs> Thank you so much for having me uh, having me along. And uh, I really, I really, I've really enjoyed it. And uh, oh, I think good. Um, I've, I've watched you all on social media before. I know we haven't met in person, but I think you're all awesome uh, mm. in your own rights. And uh, maybe after this COVID stuff, um, we all need to get together. And uh, Sounds lovely. Uh, I would love yeah, that. Maybe we need to arrange a kind of a... Dog trainer ball. Yes. That would be amazing. Yeah. Wow. That would be quite cool. Well, wow. all dressed as Dolly Parton. We'll, we'll, head on, <laughs> we'll head on down to Fingal Bridge and we'll... Uh, yeah. Go, I am I'm totally looking at Fingal Bridge when I finish. <laughs> yeah. That sounds oh, amazing. Mate. It is beautiful. Well, for, the, for the first year ever, I haven't actually bought a 2021 diary yet. Usually I'm like booked up to February and I just haven't even bought one. So nice. count me in. I'm count free. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, I'm going to say goodbye. Um, you take care and we'll speak soon. See you later. Bye. Bye. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you, Andrew. Bye. Had times collide, ourselves divide. 
precious life they've always done A spark of life we multiply This ride has just begun And here at the end of a line that stretches back through all time Time guided by a primal desire To simply survive Survive, you can't keep it And it won't be kept out 